This is Alexandra Constantine, and you are listening to the Dicinius Review, where we discuss novels, film, art, and culture from a perspective outside the mainstream. The Review is a Substack podcast, but you can listen to us on Spotify, YouTube, Apple, and anywhere else via RSS. If you enjoy the show, please like, follow, and share this episode. I've been thinking a lot about eras, ages, periods of separable time. It can be said that we are a culture firmly in the fourth decade of the digital age. But more importantly, we are in the grip of the digital social media age, one that has developed very different than most of us expected. I'm an early millennial. I was born in 1983. My generation remembers a time before. Cassette tapes, movie rental stores, having to rewind your VCRs, network TV, landlines, payphones, pagers, a world before the all-pervasive digital umbra of the internet. Sometimes, talking to younger friends, I forget that the world I grew up in, a world not so dissimilar to the ones my parents and their parents grew up in is significantly different than the world younger generations are coming up in. Social media is an interesting topic because in my lifetime, it went from a fun but ultimately meaningless thing like the early live journal in MySpace to the ambiguous and all-encompassing Facebook that is now used mostly by Gen X and Boomer grandmothers, and finally to the attention deficit-inducing psychosis of TikTok and a general disillusionment and disinterest from most of the younger people I know. But no matter how one feels about the topic, we have to accept that the internet and social networks have had a significant impact on the indie creative scene. Can one be a writer today without trying to promote oneself on social media? From book talk to Instagram video reviews, online social media is critical to both mainstream and independent writers, almost mandatory for the latter. Can a young writer enter the world of publishing without at least some minimal use of the internet? I doubt it. The age of possible hermitude and mystery of writers like Pinchin, Salinger, and Donna Tartt seems impossible today. For good or ill, the internet is here right now. It encompasses almost everything we do from banking to the news to consuming film and music. As writers, we cannot avoid it, and we have to engage with it both in our lives and in our work. As much as I lament the digital silence of the 90s, this podcast and my network of writers, artists, and editors would not exist without social media, so we have to accept it and approach it in an intelligent fashion, avoiding the pitfalls of all-consuming media psychosis and using it as a tool. But sometimes, I doubt the usefulness of the whole endeavor. Is it even real? Are there actually real people on the other side of the cell phone screen? Spend a few minutes scrolling through the comments about the latest season of True Detective and you will Doubt the reality of most commenters. It seems that so much of social media has died, and all that is left is a corpse animated by parasitical social influencers and inhuman bots shilling product to each other. Are we even creating anything worth sharing? Is there any point to all of the online conversation, or is it just digital static that will degrade and disappear into the void? Has the digital era created anything of lasting value? I don't have the answer for any of this. But I know that as for my part, myself and others have tried to steer the online creative world towards more concrete, solid, longer lasting work. Substack, the newest of the big platforms, has been a revitalizing force towards returning the digital space to a longer, more intellectual format. It is on Substack that I met fellow writer and poet Noah Reimer. Reimer is a Gen Z independent writer who has gone into the scene recently with his debut collection Harvest and the Villa title Denouement. He writes what I consider literary weird fiction in a neo-gothic mode that I find extremely well done. Welcome to the show, Noah. Hey, Alex. It's great to be here. Awesome. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful. I love your Substack, and I- Oh, thank you so much. I read your short story collection. I'm going to read your novella soon, and I'm a big fan of all your posts. Oh, thank you. So 
you know, to start off a conversation, right? You sure. just reading your work and reading your post, you come off extremely well read, right? And what I gather, and one of the main reasons I'm happy to have you on here is that we share a lot of influences. Specifically, your collection is influenced by Baudelaire, which is your screen name, you know, yeah. uh, Hieronymus Bosch, William Gibson's Neuromancer, Hunter S. Thompson, a Southern Gothic of like Fleming O'Connor, and, um, you know, interestingly enough, the Surrealist Manifesto of, of Andre Breton. Uh, let's talk about your influences, all right? How did you come to writing? Yeah, definitely. Well, um, I guess I, I actually have two of my influences right here in concrete form. I have Naked Lunch um, by Burroughs, and I have, you know, of course, Le Fils de Mont, The Flowers of Evil by Baudelaire. Um, but the, the funny thing is, uh, when I started writing, I wasn't really thinking of short stories or poems or really anything like that. I was actually a film critic. And you can see this a lot, especially with my, uh, my collection Harvest. There's a story called Murder Trance, which is both the, um, the name of a subgenre called Murder Trance, which is like a slasher offshoot. I could probably get into that later, but um, it was very much influenced by the, the scene I kind of grew up in, that kind of, um, the people I knew in Letterboxd, the people who were writing these kind of almost gonzo narratives of, of films, they were doing something I'd really never seen before. And they're kind of taking what Lester Banks did for the um, the album review. They made a, a sort of low, high art out of it. And it was just something that was really influential to how I started writing because I was looking at these reviews, especially for like some really low budget garbage kind of films, you know. The best. And they're kind of, yeah, and they're kind of constructed this kind of surrealist kind of narrative where it was more about the intensity and the motion than any actual objective factors in the film. Like it didn't matter that the, the people who made the film were teenagers and they did this like in the 1990s and they spent five bucks on the gore and whatever. It was more of like how like they brought this strangeness out of it, what they're able to do with their materials and that they're able to concoct this sort of cinema thing that didn't resemble anything like cinema. And so that was kind of my fourth foray into writing. Um, so I was very influenced by that. So I was a film writer to begin with. And I, uh, I had a zine called TV Casualty. Very, very obscure, of course. I don't even have any copies <laughs> myself. Um, but it was a lot of fun. I was able to do like the mock-ups and the, the layouts. And of course, it was very punk and horror-inspired. And that definitely shows in the, um, the stuff that I did. I, I, I used a very grimy uh, sort of coarse visceral language with it. It was, it was very rough-hewn, but um, it actually did lead to some places. Like, I was able to get an interview with one of my heroes. You may have heard of him, 42nd Street Pete. He was um, basically a grindhouse scenester back in the 70s. He basically grew up in the, um, you know, grew up on the strip on 42nd Street. And so we had this nice, long, rambling conversation about all the psychotronic flicks, you know, him, him seeing, like, Night of the Living Dead for the first time and it actually being marketed to kids because they're like, oh, this is just, like, some kind of, you know, cheesy horror movie. But, like, all those kids were traumatized the first time they right. saw it. Right. And, like, he had this really fun story about... So I basically asked him, what was the craziest shit you've seen um, when you are in 42nd Street, like, during the heyday, you know, late 70s, early 80s? He was like, I'll tell you what. I was in, I think, the Rialto. And he, he's basically telling me how he was in the... Um, so I think it was the Rialto or some other place. Got two stories you know these are old kind of art houses these are well art houses thrown into disrepair basically what the the grind houses of the 80s and 70s were right so he had these two stories and he was sitting in the first story he's an argument upstairs some, some guys they're kicking the shit out of some other guy and the other guy just like flings the other guy across in the balcony he lands right in front of pete and pete's like yeah that's the craziest thing that ever happened to me <laughs> just a guy getting thrown <laughs> off the balcony yeah i mean yeah, I, but uh, you know so i i'm a 
I'm a big movie guy myself, a big film guy. Yeah. Spent some of my earliest memories is going to movies, and I grew up in Southern California and Los Angeles, where you know that's where movies. It's all about movies over there, you know. Yeah, of course. And I've gone to some fantastic theaters out there, and it's it's kind of a sad state of affairs right now that the whole <laughs> the whole magic of going to movies. I try to take my young daughter to as many movies as we can, mm. but. Um, it's not the same anymore, you know. All, it seems that all theaters are like in disrepair and falling apart. And yeah, it's sad. So, if you're so much into film, mm-hmm. why the why the focus on actual writing, like uh, fiction, instead of um, screenplays? Yeah, that, that's a very good question. Um, I actually had a um, I wrote a film script. I wrote two film scripts not too long ago when I was in high school, and these were you know really low budget, scuzzy you know splatter flicks that me and a friend were going to direct, but you know, never came through. The pandemic went and came, and um, it was kind of trying to figure out what the hell I was going to do with these things. I eventually trashed them, um, and I didn't really start to write anything besides film reviews until I um, I went abroad. Actually, I went to Spain, and this was important for a lot of different reasons. One was because I just wanted to get the hell out of the U.S. So this was like a very convenient opportunity. It was like you know, studying abroad, um, and two, this is actually where I first started reading poetry outside of the classroom. Um, me going to Spain was actually when I first got into Baudelaire, when I first got into Bukowski, um, and when I got into Burroughs as well. It was this kind of turning point in my life where I was able to live in the city. I lived in Madrid for the year and I traveled around and just traveling around and kind of seeing the sights and kind of feeling like a bohemian at times, just right. uh, in that kind of way when you're, you know, you're a 20 something and you've been given all this kind of freedom and you can just do the hell whatever you want. And you're out clubbing at 2 AM, you regret the next morning and you're just hung over. Um, the city kind of imbued this kind of force within me and it really inspired me to just start writing and writing and writing. And it was the first time I had really written short stories and poetry and vignettes and just, you know, journals and just everything. So, yeah, Baud- I, I should probably talk about Baud- Baudelaire right now, but Le Fruits du Monde, The Fathers of Evil, he was, um, on a more autobiographical note, Flo- uh, Baudelaire was a flaneur. You know, he was kind of a guy who you just, you know, be a walkabout, a layabout. He'd just be kind of tracking himself throughout the city, just doing whatever. He's He had enough money to um, really do whatever he wanted. And this allowed him to kind of experience all the nightlife and all of the grandeur and the splendor of the city. But you also have the, the Volta, the kind of the turning where he is also able to experience the, the despair, the loneliness, the isolation that's within the city. And this is also, you know, 19th century France. This is like a turning point for France as well because you have early industrialization and you have, you know, I guess more industrial prostitution. You have all the brothels and like stuff like that. And so he, you really see it within his work that this is the, these are the words of a man who's, who's lived around and who's ultimately rootless. And that's something I really connected with because I always felt like all of my life, I was just kind of rootless guy. I was kind of drifting back and forth. And that's why I did a lot of Madrid. I drifted. Right. And you know, you know, what you're saying right now actually hits home real hard because I had a friend and ironically enough during college, she was one of my best friends and, um, mm-hmm. During college, she went on a, a study abroad program for one year in Madrid also. Really? And um, around the same time she did that, I moved from Los Angeles to Chicago. And mm-hmm. I, I loved living in Chicago for the same reasons you described, you know, Madrid. Because I was by myself for the first time. I was completely a stranger. I was a flaneur, just like Baudelaire. Yeah. 
and I would walk around. I would hop on the train and get off on different random train stations and just walk about and look at things and stop into random bars and restaurants. And there's a freedom to that when you're in a city completely devoid of connection to your life. And then especially yeah. me being an immigrant to the United States, I really don't have any family outside my immediate family here. But my friend said that the first city you live in, the first big city you live in, you know, as an adult, tends to have a lifetime impact on you. And I think mm-hmm. I think that's true. And that's how Chicago feels for me. And also Tokyo. I spent a few years living in Tokyo where I did, you know, walking around, taking trains, you know, looking at things, meeting people you know, randomly. And uh, I think cities and the exploration of cities on foot has just significant impact on art. There's so much focus on the city, the, the psycho space of the city, uh, you know, the uh, psycho uh, geography of a city. And I find that stuff fascinating. Even where I live now, which is more of a smaller, uh, more rural, um, it's not really rural. It, it's um, outside of Savannah, Georgia, which is far from yeah. rural. But um, compared to Los Angeles and Chicago, it is, mm. you know, it still has its own distinct you know, urban feel. And that's such a fascinating thing. Um, you know, and also, you know, you brought up, you kind of pre-jumped my next question, kind of my next oh, was, was that, no, no, it's awesome, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, you, you talked about Baudelaire and the whole Flannery thing and walking around and yeah. it's clear from your work and your post that you have a uh, fascination with the fin de siècle era of France. You I know? really do. And yeah. for, for, you know, people that, don't know what that is. It's basically, it means the end of the century. Uh, It's an era of French culture and history that is from about like 1890 to around the turn of the 20th century. And it's kind of marked by like decadence and a sort of almost a millennial kind of era thing, but in a more French 19th century style than what we had (laughs) in the 2000s. And, uh, like I'm a big fan of Huseman's. I don't know if you ever read his stuff, or I don't or think I have. It, it's one of the big no, de- decadent yet. poems. But you know, you like surrealism, which came a little bit around that time, but a little bit later. And a lot of the art from that era, the neo romantics and mm-hmm. the the you know the stuff that leads into the Dada and all that stuff. The whole period between like 1880 and the beginning of World War II happens to be my favorite. And it seems yeah. that you're kind of in the same space right there, you know? So where does that love of, where does the love of that come from? Sure. That's a, that's a really good question as well. Um, yeah. When you brought decadence, I was kind of thinking of um, kind of the society we live in. Um, and it, this sounds kind of trite, I know, but I kind of, I think my love of Baudelaire, my love of Rimbaud, my love of the wanderer, the flaneur kind of comes about because we've been so inundated with commodity, so much convenience. We, we have everything at the, the, you know, just right outside our reach. We could just you know, grab anything we really wanted to. We have, you know, convenience stores, we have private transport, we have drugs, sex, everything really. And it all is accessible by, you know, some delivery to us by the internet. There are so many different conduits for a multitude of things to arrive to us. Um, and I, we're just absolutely spoiled for choice. Like I can't even think think of the people can't living like I would right now. And I'm just like this middle-class guy attending college. Um, so I think, yeah, a lot of my interest in the, uh, the fin era comes because I think we are sort of living in a fin era of all that decadence of all this excess. And I really kind of see myself in 
their kinds of shoes. Uh, and I think another point just about Baudelaire, I'll try not to give on about Baudelaire this whole conversation, but as a Catholic, I find himself, I find his poetry very, very interesting. Um, I also find it really interesting, too, because whenever I mention Baudelaire around other Catholics, like, oh, I hate that guy. But they'll always seem to like, you know, people like um, Lovecraft, even though he's just as much as a nihilist as Baudelaire was. Right, right. But I think Baudelaire has the uh, the added uh, vantage point of him being kind of this, like, poet Marie, a, a, damned, um, a damned poet. And he's also Catholic as well. And what I've read from a lot of his poems is that he's in this constant sort of fervorous state of damnation and salvation. That's what his main thing for me is. It's not simply about him in the decadence and the excess in him, you know, thinking about woman like a decaying corpse and just being so, you know, slavish and just, um, you know, profane with how he's using the language, but it's also about him being a Catholic. And I think that's what a lot of people seem to miss out in Baudelaire, that he's a Catholic poet. I wouldn't say first and foremost, because he's a very conflicted character, but it's it's a lot, it's shown a lot in his poetry, and it's just very interesting to me that people kind of skip over that, or they just kind of tend to focus on the damnation aspect of it. When Baudelaire is very clearly invoking God, he's invoking salvation, he's invoking, you know, this desire to be saved, because again, he is a damned poet, but he's also looking for redemption, probably through poetry. Right, absolutely. And you know, this is a topic we brought up on one of the last episodes we did, I did with Mark Marlowe, which is the religion in writing and there is absolutely this sense where you have people that, you know, are a religious writer and a Christian writer or whatever, and they come at the fiction, they come at the work of art from such a surefire, like, uh, you know, way that it comes mm-hmm. off manufactured. It comes off as, in a way, propaganda. Definitely. When I think that the best religious writing is not from religious people, so, so you know, per se, but from a writer who happens to be Catholic, you know, a writer that happens to be Catholic Orthodox, like Dostoevsky, whose religion, whose belief as conflicted and as violent and as, as contradictory influences the work itself, you know, where you have somebody like, you know, I said, I think I said this in the last podcast, but Tarkovsky, right? Talk about movies, Mm. right? Tarkovsky made some of the most Christian movies of the 20th century, in my opinion. All right. Definitely. Uh, Andrei uh, Rublev, extremely Christian movie. Um, Stalker. 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 Yeah, yeah, I was about to say Stalker's about hope (laughs) and meaning and, you know, like uh, in prayer and so much. And, but this guy himself, while he was a, you know, an Orthodox Christian, he was living in the midst of, you know, post-Stalin Russia, right? Uh, The 60s and 70s Russia. um, And, you know, growing up in Eastern Europe, religion was not cool in Eastern Europe during that era. Mm. But he was living during that time. And on top of that, he wasn't a great individual himself. You know, he was a a philanderer and he had very mystical beliefs in a lot of things. And he, he would not by any means be called a good Christian, but is there a good Christian? And does it require a fundamentally dogmatic individual artist to write Christianity. And I don't think so. I think that Christianity itself of whatever variety can influence you because it should be part of your soul. And in that, and that's how you get true Christian work, not through mm. sitting down and I'm going to write, 
Christianity down, you know, because yeah, at that point you're just writing, you're just writing dogma, you know. Yeah, you're just and, you're just preaching to the choir. There's no you know meaning for it. Right. Um, yeah, I'm glad you brought it up because this has been a big thing for me as Catholic, of course. I, I hate most of Catholic literature. I find it very cheesy. I find it very self-indulgent. Um, it's absolutely horrific to me. It's kind of the thing that Flannery O'Connor brought up in, in her um, text, I think it was Mystery and Manners. She was talking about how you don't want to veer off into the grotesque, but you don't want to veer off into the... Um, she didn't say the word indulgent, but it was something close to that. And, of course, she was talking about the works of her time. And, of course, Flannery O'Connor is, you know... Well, she's my favorite, one of my favorite uh, Catholic authors, but she was also, during her time, practically crucified by the Catholic press because they had no idea what the hell she was doing. Right. And that's how good she was. She was so transgressive by being so Catholic. But, but you know, you, you take a secular person, like, here, read Wise Blood. They look through, what the hell am I reading? She's, she's Catholic? What, what the hell is this? Because you have, like, this Oedipus Rex ending. And it's like, right. dude blinded himself. He slept with a, a prostitute. What the, you know, it's like... It's so crazy what she's doing, but she's also so radical in how she approaches Christianity because she's always approaching it not from, oh, this is going to sell good to Catholic authors, but she's also, she's, excuse me, she's approaching it from how can I sell this to secular authors? And that's why I try to do my fiction. Um, it's, it's kind of a pain to me, but I think it's also kind of a blessing that nobody's been able to, nobody has mentioned the Catholic aspects of my work. And I think that's for the best because I'd rather have people have it fly under the radar for people than for people like, oh, yeah, he's just preaching the choir. He's just talking with good Catholics out there. You know, Mr. Goody Two-Shoes, you know, Mr. Radstrad over here. I ain't Mr. Radstrad. Done some terrible things in my life. Not afraid to admit it. Um, but, yeah, when it when it comes to kind of religiosity in my, uh, my work, um, you know, with Harvest, you have um, the first story is Sleepless. And then you have the last story is Finnesico. Finisicle, how you pronounce it. Mm. I kind of worked those in as a bookend. And Sleepless is kind of my reworking of the Baudelarian uh, damned poet. And the Finisicle is my um, kind of taking of that damned poet and showing him redemption. Um, if I could just pull up the quote real quick. Sure, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. Here, here's the, uh, like the last sentence of uh, Finisicle. All of that which I have written malleable, wilts compared to the unchanging word. Now, of course, the word that uh, I'm talking about there, that's the, that's a devotable, you know, that's the word of God. And it's the poet might be um, choosing to, I guess, in a sense, toss away his writings, toss away, um, you know, the necess necessity to be, to be great, to be grand. And he's giving himself to Christ and he's giving himself up to, to the father. He's allowing himself to be crucified, but not in a sort of, uh, in the way that the poem of would be, he's not giving himself the pleasure to die of pleasure, to die of, you know, his addictions, but he's giving himself to die for a greater purpose. So that's why I put that in there. And uh, I won't hold up too much of uh, this part of the conversation, but I also want to mention in my uh, novella denouement, denouement, um, you know, the French terms just are terrible. I can't pronounce them. I know you haven't read it yet, but um, I kind of employ the same kind of tactic within that novel. Uh, to just give you the, the short and narrow, it's it's very narrativeless. I chose not for it to not to have any particular story, and the way I approached religiosity in that novella was um, I basically had it be sort of like a um, a negative approach to theology. God is known by His absence, and you definitely get that with a lot of the scenes within that um, within that story. It's it's sort of violent or atavistic, but in a very kind of calm, collected sense. There's a lot of 
a lot of excess, a lot of convenience that I kind of poke fun of. So it's, it's kind of like a, a juvenile satire on uh, modernity, on how we have so much convenience in the world and how we're so godless as a nation that a lot of the kids like me are kind of drifting, hence the name, the nouments, the literary term for unraveling, because that's what basically the characters do, is they unravel and they get to a point where they just can't hold like their trauma within themselves and they have to spill out and it just leads to confession upon confession upon confession. But of course, it's always to a secular authority, it's just their friends, it's themselves, or just to the void that exists outside of them in the suburban hellscape. Uh, and a, I guess a short spoiler I have at the end, my main character, she is a, she escapes from the night, you know, it, the dawn comes, it's, there's a sort of hopefulness to it. And she encounters this blues singer who's singing about, you know, being ready for the, uh, the apocalypse, being ready for, you know, God's second coming. And, uh, you know, there's, there's just a little shrivel of hope in there. this little sliver of hope. And I have her basically, I have that end with her writing, basically the events of what happened in the novella. And so you have a little bit of that there, but I just don't want to make it, you know, overt. That's the main thing for me. I don't want it to be like, I'm not painting this in, uh, in bold colors. It's going to be more on the subtext. You know, I'm just going to work it in there. If you get it very good. Thank you for close reading the text. If you don't, that's okay. Because, you know, God works in different ways and I'd rather it be more subtle and kind of be something you have to kind of chew on to really get the meaning than just like have it be out there. Right. And you know, one of the things, and you, you see this on, I would say, both sides of the spectrum, which is a lot of people forget that art, you know, fiction, film, is about truth. Fundamentally, it's about mm. truth, right? It's about showing the truth. And on one end of the secular um, kind of uh, spectrum of writers, uh, you see this in the online the kind of like leftish kind of era you want people they want a fantasy of what the world is you know the one's perfect yeah. world of you know everybody's happy multicultural and perfect and then on the trad kind of christian world you also want the, they want the same thing a different flavor mm-hmm. but the same thing a utopia um, and you have these utopian mindsets where they criticize anybody that really tells the truth because the truth whether you're a christian or a secular whether you're a buddhist or, or anything like that I said the world kind of sucks and people, the best of people can do really fucked up shit, you know, Yeah. but they can also be good people. And yeah. that's the truth, you know? Um, and it, it's rough in our, in our era, in our age to portray characters that do the bad, the wrong thing. And sometimes they do the right thing also, you know, and what's a hero. It's hard uh, because we cannot just write, Conan the Barbarian pastiche of like heroes yeah. and knights or, you know, guys with ray guns and then, do you know, or just good guys that accept everyone and have nothing but 21st century political thoughts in their heads in whatever setting, yeah. you know? Um, sure. So you actually are leading me to my next part, which by the way, your novella sounds fantastic. I can't wait to oh, read thank it. you. But you mentioned the blues, right? Which yeah. leads me to the, my next topic, which is you seem from your post once again to be really influenced by music, punk rock specifically. And now me, oh, definitely. I'm a big music guy too. So let's talk about music. All right. What, what are some of your musical influences on your work? Oh, that's a really interesting question. I think I can kind of go like buy my books, buy my um, posts, whatever. When I think of uh, the, my collection harvest, I think a lot about Miles Davis 
Miles Davis is a huge influence on me, specifically Bitches Brew. That's kind of like my editing music. So that's like always my background. I kind of, I think it really helps for me to unscrew from, um, from any kind of strict narrative sense. So just having that in the background kind of helps me to, to kind of cut out like any unnecessary syntax or grammar or anything like that to kind of make things run faster, if you know what I mean. And that's also kind of like, you know, with, with Burroughs, that's why I learned a lot from Naked Lunch is that if you want the machine to run faster, you got to take a lot of stuff out, a lot of unnecessary things. I think everything in Naked Lunch is necessary in a very strange way. I think it's necessary for Burroughs to say, because if you look at the pros of Naked Lunch, it's very disconnected. It's very discombobulated. It's uh, There's a famous quote that if you leave on one page of Naked Lunch, you're not going to be able to tell where the hell you left off because it is this like neon arabesque. And I'm, I'm staying online from, from Burroughs, of course, in that. Uh, this neon arabesque of sight and sound and quality and texture that is just so rich but cobbled together. So that's why I try to have my stuff be as well, rich but cobbled together. Now for um, for other influences besides like Miles Davis when it comes to the music side of things, um, I listen to a lot of Acid House as well. That was very particular to when I was writing uh, Dead Los Angeles because you have the uh, the club scene at the end. Yeah, I, I, I could see that. I could see that. Yeah, and that was actually my that was my favorite story in the collection. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, so yeah, so so Acid House, some free jazz, definitely punk rock, but I think the punk rock influence shows more in uh, my novella because one of the opening scenes is that my main character is in a punk club and I'm describing the kind of uh, the Dionysian rites of uh, punk rock, which is really funny because Harvest was actually going to be called Dionysian rites. Um, but I went for Harvest because I wanted more like a, like a full core feel to it. And right. Dionysian rites just didn't really give that, didn't really have that uh, flavor to it. But um, yeah, so that's kind of how I um, parsed down my musical influence. I think those are like the big three. I think that that's really it when it comes to music. Not sure what else I could tell you. Well, what kind of what kind of punk music do you like? Are we talking about, we talking about like yeah. late seventies, eighties stuff, or some of the newer nineties, two thousands kind of? Well, like, is there any punk anymore? I mean, I don't, I don't think. Yeah, so. I could, I could tell you, I could spin off about like modern punk because I really do like the contemporary stuff that's been um, really? coming out. But I, I like you know the big like seventies scenes, like the the big three. Um, L.A. is fantastic, underrated. New York, of course. I really like. Um, you know, the UK punk, punk scene as well. I like some stuff in the 80s, some stuff in the 90s, post-punk, post-hardcore. And um, yeah, on the topic of uh, more contemporary punk, I, I know definitely a few um, a few really good artists' albums that have come out like in the 2020s. I'm thinking of Lumpy and the Dumpers. They're a fantastic, really scuzzy um, kind of egg crust punk band, which sounds kind of... <laughs> I'm not sure if you understand the egg slash crust uh, dichotomy, or sorry, not crust, um, chain, egg and chain dichotomy. But it, it always, it's kind of going back to like the 70s influence, like, with this, like the stuff like the Ramones and uh, Devo and right. uh, like UK82 hardcore stuff. So uh, Six Thought, Six Thoughts is really good as well. He has a really good horror punk style. I usually just listen to the Misfits for my horror punk, but I found he's insanely catchy. He has fantastic riffs, really fun vocals, very self-aware. Um, so I'd highly recommend him as well. Right. I mean, absolutely. This, that misfits are pretty much. If you don't listen to them, you know, what are you talking about here? Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. I uh, had a punk era in my youth. Right. It lasted for about a year or so, um, and I realized that I tend to prefer the more the more melodic, more rhythm kind of driven music, like the yeah. the, cl- the Clash. But I'm really in the in the post punk 
like if you were if i were to be yeah. one era of music that like i want to live in is new wave and post-punk you know uh joy division right when it comes to literary oh, yeah. influences joy division i mean they've got songs named after dostoevsky's work yeah and this is actually something that i don't need to cut you off no 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 um, go ahead <laughs> this is actually something you're going to one of my points that i was thinking i was going to make soon but yeah a lot of my uh, literary influence actually comes from punk a lot of what i read like you know um Peri Ubu, i i picked up the alpha jetty's play because of their band i picked up google's dead souls because of joy division I probably picked up a few novels from uh, Public Image. I'm not, although I'm not sure if they mentioned any explicit, you know, thing in their music. I picked up Camus, um, The Stranger. I'm pronouncing that terribly, I know, because of the the cure killing. Oh, yeah, the you know what? On a side note, for some freaking sure. reason, that Cure song is not on goddamn Spotify anymore, and I, I can't find it, uh, which is killing an Arab, right? Which is the yeah. Camus, you know, it's based on the Camus. Um, novella right or long yeah. short story and i think people thought it was a racist uh you know uh, yeah that uh, makes song sense but, but it's not because it's like i said it's based on camus yeah freaking novel which is a fantastic short novel you can read it about an Definitely. hour and a half um but but yeah absolutely same thing with me right joy division really got me reading uh jg ballard yeah yeah right. same here that's why, why i picked up high rise Right, exactly. Joy Division's Atrocity Exhibition, which is one of my favorite songs. I'm like, huh, all this stuff is based off J.G. Ballard. I'll read some J.G. Ballard. And I've... There you go. Last year, I had like a a stretch of just J.G. Ballard, you know, and it's pretty depressing if it, you know, intertwined with other stuff. Um, But yeah, music is such a critical thing. And and what we're talking about really shows how, you know, music, film, the visual arts, and the written art intertwine and how having a community mm-hmm. of sharing that kind of like that that psychospheric space you know that creative space is such a critical thing because we can take from the past and take from you know and move to the future and one thing that i've noticed about you is that you are a very goddamn well-read dude all right oh thank you you know you're that. one of the people that we, we can have this conversation and we're talking about stuff that I'm going to guarantee you a good 50% of the people that follow us probably never even read or heard of, you know? And unfortunately in the independent scene, in the indie publishing scene, there's a kind of a iconoclastic Philistine kind of vibe where Mm. they hate everything that a college literature class would teach you, you know, or they won't read the classics at all. I'm just going to write my own thing, which is cool in a, in a punk rock kind of way. But at the same time, it, it kind of punk rock itself, for example, cannot be punk rock in a vacuum. Punk rock exists because it's a response to the 70s and the 60s excess and stupid hippie shit, you know? I mean, or or the Elvis stuff, you know? Uh, And then Mm. post-punk cannot exist without punk because that also is a... Yeah, naturally it follows through. Right, a response. Yeah, yeah. and I mean, like, a a lot of, like, the... Especially the 70s, 80s punks, they were big autodidacts. You know, that's why you have so much, so many literature references, you know, a lot of kind of film references within um, that early kind of wave, that early strain. That's where I got a lot of my inspiration from. And, uh, you know, on the topic of punk, it's a big reason why I became a writer as well, because they told me I could do it myself. And so I did. And I, you know, I started writing up that, that zine I told you about, that was my film zine that kind of followed through into, you know, how I wrote my literature. I wrote my literature punk rock, even though, you know, like you said, uh, your words, not mine. I'm well read. A dubious claim, but I'll take it. Um, 
but you know, it's it's a lot of these kind of like rough-hewn aspects of just like you know, here's here's a pencil, here's some paper, just do it yourself, make your own fanzine. Uh, you know, here's a guitar, here's three chords, start your band, um, and that kind of follow through as well. And we were talking about this in the, on the little pre-show about my uh, literary pub, Peri Ube, which you're curious about the name of. Um, so I started Peri Ube because I was kind of fed up with chucking all of my stuff to literary mags, you know, who are more highfalutin, who are more kind of uh, reserved and kind of, you know, boring, honestly, and not really, you know, getting much out of that. You know, it's kind of a numbers game. Absolutely. It's, you know, you you send your schlock out and and most people don't like it because like, it's like, what the hell are you talking about? And, you know, they always send you the well-meaning, but ultimately annoying sort of response letter. Like, we really loved your stuff, but, you know, please don't send us your shit ever again. Thank you. Love you. Goodbye. Right. A year Um, later. So you have to wait. (laughs) Oh, and by the way, don't, we don't, we only take, uh, you know, one like request a year and, you know, no simultaneous submissions. So basically wait six years for it, for us to tell you, no, thank you for your work that we'd pay you like 20 bucks if we actually did pay you in the first place. But, yeah, exactly. Uh, and then they act like, you know, oh my God, why don't people read anymore? You know, <laughs> it's because it, there's no point to sending stuff. Like the idea of like spe- sending all your work and waiting years for a reply, you know, even months, even like six months is too much for me. And in, in the digital yeah. age is just nonsense to me. You know? Definitely. And that, that aspect has really influenced how I run things as, a, as an editor-in-chief um, at my place. Because the way I thought about it, I was like, okay, what do I not like about what people are doing nowadays in that kind of, you know, I guess you could say neoliberal realm where, you know, most submissions are either by, you know, like white woman or, you know, by POC people. I'm a person of color. I don't really give a shit about, like, most of, like, the literature that comes out from people of color because it's always focused on like the narrow, the narrow aspects of their particular culture, my particular culture, whatever. And it's just not good literature. They think trauma is good literature. It's fucking not. You got to write well to make trauma good literature, you know, but um, aside from that little uh, rant, I was thinking, how do I really want to do this? So I instated things like I would like a punk rock scene. I built it from the ground up grassroots. I keep it small. I keep it consistent. I keep it steady. I can keep it a little sloppy sometimes because I want people to send me, you know, more unvarnished stuff, stuff that doesn't reek of like MFA holding, you know, kind of um, Starbucks drinking kind of people, if you get what I mean. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. I mean, I've never, I don't have an MFA and the idea of even going to get an MFA disgusts me. Like I I can't physically even stomach the idea. It's nauseating. Right. I can't stomach the idea because, and I think, was it, what's his name on X on Twitter or whatever Uh, the guy, the guy, Alex something, he, he's an MFA guy, but he's a Cuban, Cuban American living in Miami. And he talks about how, like, exactly like you said, Oh, Alex Perez, Alex Perez, right. That's his name. I I love his stuff, you know? And he talks about how, how, you know, all like minority stuff is just trauma fiction. Like it's all make believe for rich upper class white women who Definitely. want to kind of go slumming, you know? So unless exactly. you, if you're it's, Hispanic, it's tourism, right? If you're Hispanic, you got to write about Abuelita's mangoes trees. And if you're, you know, <laughs> yeah, magical, uh, magical right, right, exactly. And if you're from Africa, you got to talk about how you're an immigrant in Europe and somebody touches your fucking hair or something like that. And it, it, it's just nonsense because yeah. it's not what humanity's about, you know, we're not exactly. Like, I mean, I'm an immigrant, right? So I could probably write yeah. about the immigrant experience in America, you know, whatever, you know, I'm the wrong kind of immigrant. Because I'm from Eastern Europe, you know, but yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I can, 
could probably play that up. I mean, if I was gay, I'd doubly play it up, you know. But I'm oh not, yeah, yeah, definitely get right. more more brownie points for that. But that's not what we want to write about. That doesn't define. No, it doesn't define me. You know, it's a part of me, but it's not me. You know, uh, being yeah. where I'm born. You know, there, there's so many elements to who we are, and you go to Barnes and Noble, any of the bookstores, and you look at the new new novels, and it's just all just the same fucking thing. And it's the same mm. thing because the, the same kind of people get published by mainstream. It's the oh, same yeah. people go to the MFAs because they, they have to be well off. You know, MFA programs might be free because, you know, to get in, but you still have to pay rent, you know, and somebody that's mm. coming from a, a real lower class or real working class lifestyle cannot afford to go to you know college for two three years to get an MFA to get a job doing yeah nothing <laughs> right yeah, you know exactly I mean? right no yeah I, I get exactly what you mean it's you know it's why my favorite type of submissions are the people who have probably like never published anything outside of the, the submission to me before I have no MFA have probably have like no real like you know writing experience or you know it's just these kind of people getting it from the ground up and they have like five lines of bio. It's a really casual email. Hi, this is my name. Please accept my stuff or consider it. I'll look at it. It's fantastically written. It's it's usually humorous. It's it's darkly satirical. It's got some flavor to it. It's got some real juice. It's got some, you know, as Bukaska put it, blood. And at, at the same time, I receive all these emails from these MFA holders because unfortunately, fortunately, Perry Ube got listed on Duotrope, so now I'm getting those kinds of people coming in. So yeah, I get this mass immigration of people who, uh, you know, go to nice colleges, who drive probably nice cars, drink good coffee, you know, the normies. I mean, I like, and, I like, I like good coffee, all right? It's not... No, no, I, I'm not trying to crucify you here, but you know what I mean, like the, the Starbucks crowd. I could get cut myself, but, um, you know, the people who have like, you know, a whole paragraph of bio, people who are describing where the who they are, where they're from, their achievements, all of these literary awards that they're garnered. Their struggles. Uh, yeah, their, their struggles. And, um, you know, I'll read like two lines into what they've submitted. It's just absolute crap. You know, it's, it's you know, it's kind of like what I was saying before. It's either kind of like autofiction. It's about, oh, oh, your boyfriend broke up with you and this is, you know, how you're going to express it. Or it's like, you know, buy POC trauma. Thank you very much. Have a nice day. Goodbye. Get the hell out of my inbox. Now let me invite this person who, you know, has had no like polished experience whatsoever, who has written this fantastic poem that really, you know, speaks to life, speaks to truth, speaks to the, the grit of it all. I'm going to publish you. You're fantastic. I adore what you're doing. Please send me more stuff. Right. And you want, I mean, for example, I want to read like POC stuff or, you know, yeah. uh, different sexualities and that kind of stuff. I just, it cannot be a circus show for rich people mm. within so much Definitely. of, you know, so much of the MFA stuff you see over in, you know, at Barnes and Noble is basically rich immigrant girl whose daddy pays for college, goes to Europe, rides the cock carousel, is depressed, yeah. <laughs> goes home, takes oh, yeah. SSRIs. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, it's real Benadryl fiction. I hate right? it. It's the same stuff. And it's like, oh my God, so boring sucks it doesn't say anything about our current age it doesn't mm. say anything about our current people and i'm open-minded though like i want to read of stuff I, I you know i read i think the a nobel prize winning fiction from a few years ago the um oh my gosh uh mm. the goon squad one i don't know i don't know i can't remember it right now goon squad. Uh, yeah i don't i don't know either way i read that it was kind of a big literary thing um sure and it was good. I thought it was great. But 
it was great because it was very different than the usual kind of like MFA stuff. Oh yeah, and I, I think it was an older writer. That's kind of what made it good. Um, also read, you know, listen to a lot of Nick Cave. So, oh yeah, I love some Cave. You have to listen to Nick Cave. I need to throw that in here. I don't know if you follow his. He he does like a a weekly kind of newsletter. Yeah, was it Red Right Hand, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Some of that. Yeah. Notes from the Red Right Hand. I don't his newsletter. I, I got to start reading it, but I do love his songs. Um, yeah, I also forgot to mention for uh, Harvest, like just listen to goth music, especially Nick Cave. Uh, was a huge influence on uh, you know, some of the more like weird fiction pieces I put in there. Especially something like uh, Finsfield Morrow, which is like the the one about the vampires. Right. You know, big, big, just putting like a lot of Nick Cave into that on totally. the uh, musical side. I mean, the more Nick Cave, the better. You know, it's some honest, some Christian yeah, death in there wrong. and stuff. You know, um, oh, I'm, yeah, I'm a yeah, <laughs> I'm a like that whole era, like the whole Goth Club era was, was oh, where, where I dwell, kiss. man. You know that that's, yeah, that's your little cave, that's your avatar over there. Yeah, like <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna roll around. You know, I wish I, if I was 20 again, I'd go back to all the LA all Goth Clubs. Just, yeah, yeah. I'd I, I like, love to do that. Man. People don't even know the struggle of growing up in the in the t- early 2000s, where if you had if you wanted to wear tight jeans, you had to wear your girlfriend's pants. All right. Now, yeah. now all these young guys can go to the store and they can buy all the tight jeans you want. Yeah. I had to steal my girlfriend's jeans to go to the club. All right. Yeah. This is this is like Janko era. You have yeah. like the, the big, exactly big right. Pants. Everybody's wearing this is the you know, true underrepresented minority. Alex. Yeah. You know, the, the goth kids who were, grew up in the 2000s. That was my struggle, guys. <laughs> all right. I wore, was wearing my girlfriend's jeans because. I'm not wearing pipes or Jenkos or whatever the hell they're. Yeah, and I, I guess I'll, I'll open up about my own kind of pants struggles here. I uh, I used to wear uh, Tiger of London um, bondage pants uh, not too long ago, actually. Like my freshman year in college, and you have to understand this is a very where I go. It's a very Catholic traditional college, but I was getting look, weird looks from everywhere. And I was it, there was that, and then I also had this other outfit where. For whatever ungodly reason, uh, it was like my pseudo goth phase. I was trying to look like Caesar from the Count of Dr. Caligari. Like I had like a black <laughs> turtleneck on. I had some tight jeans. I had some Doc Martens. And I had this little razor blade necklace. It was terrible, but I think I have the uh, the photo somewhere. I'd love to show it to you. Oh, there's some photos of, of me from that era where I'm, I had set of my head shaved with the hair over yeah. the eyes. I used to dye gotcha. blue, the blue-black hair dye, you know, oh, everywhere. So I yeah, strained I my hair because my hair is naturally <laughs> curly. So I had to, you know, it was yeah. it was a mess. You know, it took me like an hour. Do you, do you know how hard it yeah. is when you wear those like knee high kind of boots that like lace all the mm-hmm. way up, right? And you come home yeah. from a bar of night of drinking and you're about to throw up and there's no freaking way you can get those boots off. Um, yeah, I couldn't imagine. Nightmare. Right? That is, sneakers now. <laughs> that is my struggle, guys. All right. Honestly, honestly, represent, dude. Represent. Yeah. Now I just wear like flip flops everywhere because I'm, I'm an there old man. So I really like what you said about uh, the, the whole punk do it yourself thing, right? And the whole yeah. independent thing. I don't know if you've read my about on my Substack. It's all about that. That that's what gotcha. I care about. That's why I'm doing this stupid podcast, right? I'm doing it yeah, because it's do it yourself. I was like, you know what? Why not? It's grassroots. I want to hear good conversation about novels and authors and film and everything. And I can't find it. So I'm just going to make it myself. All right. That's kind of how, how my, my goal was here. And of course, in my own writing, I don't want to talk about here, but that's the whole, that's the best thing about it. Right now. I often think, how about, would you actually go mainstream? Would you ever submit a novel to a mainstream publication? Like, you know, Penguin Random House or something like that. You know, I don't think I would. It's not because like, it's like, oh, I just don't want to sell out. I don't want to come a poser. I mean, that's kind of part of it. 
But my heart belongs to the indie scene. My heart belongs to the alternative. I just, it's not a fact that like I just I it would be I would be scared of like you know kind of kind of selling out. It's just the fact that I wouldn't be able to do it. That's not in my DNA. I've just been brought up so much within the DIY um, confines that it's just literally out of my nature. It's just, it's not my essence, if you want to feel metaphysical about it. Oh, and it, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I, I think I feel exactly the same way. It's like people say, "Oh, well, you know, what if they want to turn your your book into a movie?" I'm like, I'm not interested in that. Yeah. You know, hey, if, unless if, David Lynch wants to do it or something like that. Yeah, exactly. And, and yeah, if, but if someone wants to direct like a movie based on my novel, find me some, find me some, you know, art school kid. Give him twenty thousand dollars. See what he comes up with. I want to see what he's going to do. Right. I'll be there on the set. I'll be helping him out. I'll be, I'll be going over the notes. I'll be highlighting, annotating. Just don't give me to like some big budget producer. Don't give me to fucking Wes Anderson, you know? Right. Get that guy out of here. I don't give that. me to one of those big block blockbuster kind of guys. I could probably do an entire podcast and why I hate Wes Anderson. So it's I join like, you. I, I, it's my, my hatred. Like, that, yeah. like my one, I don't know why did, it makes me yeah. vomit when I think about his movies. I try and I tried. I really tried. Yeah. And Moonrise King, Kingdom pissed me off so much. Like everything about mm-hmm. them made me made me sick. I, I hated it. Yeah, same here. And I think it's because of the artificiality of the inherent right. artificiality what Anderson is doing. Everything is so pre planned. So, so twee, so fake twee. Exactly. Yeah. And what we're talking about, you know, we're talking about punk rock. We're talking about Burroughs. We're talking about Baudelaire. These people have lived. These people have been in the gutter and back. You know, these are the people who you know, who just got it within their veins, who just know what it's like to, to live and to have lived and to have experienced and ultimately to have died. Right. Right. And yeah. Now, you know what? So we're talking about movies actually. And I, <laughs> a conversation I always bring up with uh, different writers is, do you think that novels translate well into film? Because, okay, so here's, I'm going to preface this, right? A lot of people say that the novel's dead. In my opinion, I don't think that the novel's dead because the written word, the novel, can do something that no other media, film, you know, 3D, face masks or whatever nightmare they're coming up with, just can never come close, which is, you know, the internal, you know, philosophical and emotional feeling that you can get from a novel where you're actually Mm. in the character as opposed to looking at the character through a window. And I think that a lot of great novels don't translate well into film because of that. Because ultimately, there's always a screen. You're always looking through a window when you're watching a movie. So do you think that novels translate well into film? What do you think about that? It's a very interesting point. Um, I definitely agree with you that there's there's like something else that's within the novel, like quintessence that really can't be touched by other like visual mediums. Um, I kind of think of it, you know, like with very obvious examples, like Blood and Rain by Cormac McCarthy, like the right. classic and adaptable novel. It's just, there's just too much going on in there to, to condense even to like a three to four hour film. It's and impossible. Aside, yeah, aside from that, it's just, there's no way you can translate it outside of its given form. And I think for me, like a lot of the stuff that I write, I will admit, I will cop out to being very cinematically uh, inspired. I'm kind of thinking about a lot of directors. I'm thinking about Fellini in this one. Here's like, you know, Mario Bava, that's like a certain film angle that he would use, or this is like his constructed set. Or maybe I'm going with a little uh, Richard Linklater here. But at the very same time, what you have in novels is what you can't have in any other medium, and that's imagination. The, at the end of the day, the reader is ultimately the one who's going to be the, the cinematographer, who's going to be the, the sound design, who's going to be giving the background and the depth and the light, who's, you know, constructing this 
you're seeing in their head. So it's not exactly a one-to-one thing. Like if you if you put on something like, you know, on the top of Fellini eight and a half, everyone's gonna see the same film because it is what Fellini is showing you. It is what he has planned out. It is, you know, he has done these shots, he has done these lines, he's done dialogue. That's all very concrete. But the novel still rests within this sort of, um, I guess you could say, supernatural plane, if you just want to put it like that. Absolutely. The novel as something spiritual. It is beyond, spiritual. beyond the visual. It's beyond the concrete. Exactly. It's, in a, in its in its own realm. And that's why I don't think the novel is anywhere near dying. And I, mm. I'm one of the uh, the white pill guys when it comes to literature. I think it's going to it's I think it's an everlasting form for us. I mean, since the beginning. I think of, so, too. You know, um, and I think. But I'm not a film hater. I love movies. I love movies, right? Yeah, of course. And I think that so it's great that people get influenced by movies and sometimes approach the novel from a cinema, you know, cinema, cinematographic <laughs> kind of way. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. As long as people, in my opinion, should not write a novel like a movie. And I see this a lot in a lot of like mm. modern kind of contemporary writing. Yeah. Is I think my goal as a writer is to write a novel that cannot be filmed. Yeah. That's, that's the same a, for that, me as well. That's a success like metric I have. Right. Because if it can be filmed, then why the fuck am I writing it and not making it into a movie yeah, exactly. in the first place? You know what I mean? Like, no, I, I completely understand. Right. So that, that's kind of how, how I look at it. Like, you know, Thomas Pinchon's novels, right. They, they can't be filmed. I mean, they did inherit vice and it's, I, all right. I like the movie, but it's yeah. not, it's not great. All right. Same. So, we are getting close to the end, so I want to ask you a few more questions. All right, yeah. what do you have? What's the plan for the future? What's what's next? What what do you yeah. have coming up now? Another great question. Uh, well, I have some chapbooks up uh, to be released. I this is like the stuff that you know I just have to print it up. I have one called I think Suburban Gothic, which uh, is a collection of like previously published short stories on Bruiser, on Do Not Submit, that kind of stuff. Um, I'm also planning my my next novella, which is. Um, the uh, the the title in the works is called Mowgli, um, and it's basically about this punk rock kid who's kind of set within this really strange high school. It's it's basically like a, a combination. It's like it's like Repo Man meets Lovecraft. Honestly, it's it's a very strange kind of thing. <laughs> okay, you have this you have this uh, you have secret agents. You have a high school death cult led by uh, popular girls. You have an Oregon har- harvester within the high school itself. Is all situated within like this, you know, high school basket case um, outcast who's just trying to like, you know, play a few gigs here and there, find out the meaning of life, maybe you know, have sex with a girl he likes, and you know, maybe eventually find love along the way. Um, so while it's going to be like a very crazy narrative, it's also going to be something very human. You know, it's just focusing on this guy, and of course, it's going to be very autobiographical. It's going to be like me directing my eight and a half. Like this is definitely me, and and this is just my how my life has been, and yeah, that's. I think that's kind of it for what I've been planning in the works. And, you know, Perry Ube is still going to be publishing stuff. Um, you know, I, we haven't gotten the authors yet, but honestly, I would love to ed- edit a manuscript one of these days. If you, know, if you or anyone would have any ideas, just send them my way, honestly. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. And you know what? I always think, and I think the best thing about you, for example, I think mm-hmm. that the independent scene is starving for good editors. That's where we're lacking i think that the do-it-yourself thing is outstanding but behind every great writer is a good editor and we need to bring in editors into a scene for it to really happen in the same way you know a music producer a uh, studio engineer 
it was critical to the creation of you know all the great music scenes. Definitely. Right. Yeah, everyone needs a, a Phil Spector behind their arms. Right, right. <laughs> Somebody needs Spector all the time. Where Definitely. where okay. can readers exactly. f- where can readers find your work? I, I know I'm going to share links to Substack sure. everywhere, but if you want to let us know real quick where we can find some of your stuff. Yeah, Substack, Young Baudelaire. That's, I guess, my main hub. I also have uh, Perry Ube, my, uh, my literary mag, which is where I, I, I will post occasionally, but it's also where I kind of just you know post other people. A lot of prose. Um, I, I think I have an excerpt from a novel or somewhere, something over there, um, some poems and whatnot. And I'll eventually like post my, my own stuff. Like I have a little PDF section where I have some zines and some chapbooks that are just there if you want to go check them out. I have my books. I have Harvest, which I'll, I'll, put, I'll send a link to you if you already don't already have it. And then I have uh, two other books, which are going to be coming out in print soon. I have one right here. This is my poetry collection, Poems for St. John's Apocalypse. So it's a lot of like stuff that I've collected over the years and uh, some stuff that's new, some stuff that's never been released. And also my previously uh, mentioned novella, Denouement, Denouement, will be coming out in print as well. I'm just finishing up, just uh, speaking a little here and there and just waiting for some beta readers to uh, finish checking it out. And yeah, that's pretty much what I have out right now. So if you guys want to check that out. Yeah, I'm going to make sure I'm going to put all the links on the Substack post. That way people can come and grab your stuff and read it because it's fantastic. All right, so I'm going to let you go now, but I got one more question. Hold on. I got one more thing. I, oh, I, I, I don't want to cut you off. No, which, please do. But um, <laughs> all right. I know we talked about this. We we hyped it up. We didn't say too much about it because we got, we got derailed, which is always a good thing when you're doing a podcast. But right. the origins of Perry Ube's name. Oh yeah, there we go. Yeah. I want to know. <laughs> so basically, this is a um, what, what do you call it when it's like you're putting two words together to make like a one word, one phrase. It's say um. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, yeah. It's right. like smog, smoke and fog. Right. Yeah, whatever whatever it is. You know, I, I'm a literature major, but I don't even know what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> so, that, so that's whatever that is. You have the pere comes from, um, you know, pere, uh, pere Ubu, which of course is the band, the post-punk band, as well as the uh, the, char- the titular character, Afajeri's Ubu Roy. So that's where the, the pere comes from. And the Ube is actually, um, it's the name for a Filipino uh, sweet and purple yam. Right. That's what I thought, actually. That's what I thought. Oh, really? Yeah. Right. I spent a a decade living in Southeast Asia, you know, in in Japan. So I'm quite familiar with the the purple potato. Yeah. It's different from Tara, though. It's definitely different from Tara. No, I I know. I know. I know. There's a a bunch of interesting differences between all of those. And then you have the weird soursop melon, which nobody's ever heard of except for Asians. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We have a lot of weird fruits. But yeah, that's where the. my uh, literary pub's name comes from. Okay. All right. I like that. I like that. And now, you. you know, I have, I actually have it open right here and I was looking through some of the stuff and it's all great. Oh, cool. So now Thank for you. the final goodbye question. All right. Sure. And then, and then I'm going to start doing this for every single guest. So sure if you future guests need to pay attention right now, cause I'm going to yeah. ask you this. Take some I, notes. One of the most valuable things of listening to podcasts, reading Substacks, you know, being on social media is discovering new and old work new to me. So you as a writer, let me know, what are you reading right now? What's one book you recommend somebody reads and one movie you recommend somebody watches, okay? It doesn't, right. doesn't have to be old. It doesn't have to be new. But, sure. you know, something, you know, if I walked up to you, hey, man, what, what can I watch? That's cool. Mm-hmm. Let me, let me, hit me with it. Well, first of all, I'm very mad at you for not telling me this beforehand because you know, yeah, I, I just, have to, just like cycle through everything, my, the Rolodex in my mind. All right, let's do something, something, something recent you've watched and liked, okay? 
I just made this question right. up right now, man. Sorry. No, no, you're fine. I'll, I'll, I, I can I can do the two prong question. So for book, um, I have to recommend apart from what I've been mentioning during this podcast, I have been reading um, was it The Temptation of Saint Anthony by um, damn it, I forgot his name. Another French dude, another 19th century French dude, Flaubert, Gustave Flaubert. I, of course, I found it very interesting as a Catholic. He raises some very interesting theological points when it comes to the idea of temptation and, you know, those kind of hermits that were running in the desert. He, he does a fantastic job with both his uh, his styling, um, his his prose is fantastically literary, uh, as well as those kind of nagging questions of theology that, you know, some people who are like, you know, cradle Catholics, converts, reverts, whatever, always kind of ask themselves. And he does a fantastic job with that. And for film, I would probably have to say, uh, very underseen Japanese black and white film, very punk rock, Electric Dragon, 80,000 volts. If you've seen Tetsuo the Iron Man, it's very much similar to that. It's basically two guys having this crazy electricity battle all over Tokyo. You've never seen anything like it, and it's one of my favorite um, hidden gems. So awesome. that's it for me. I actually just recently watched a Japanese movie. Uh, I think really? Contemporary, current one, the, uh, Drive, oh. my, Drive My Car. Yeah, I've been meaning to watch that myself, actually. Yeah, and uh, uh, it's based on a um, what's his name? Oh, my, my brain is rotted today. But the, the big no, the, there you're fine. You get a pass. The, the big Japanese writer, uh, what's his name? Oh uh, uh, yeah, I don't know big Japanese writers. Haruki Murakami. Right. Okay. Yeah. It's based on one of his short stories, and it was a fascinating okay. film because it was you know, freaking three hours long. It's great, yeah. and I like watching. A lot of foreign films because the oh, so the narrative, the narrative like format is so different in Japanese film and uh, mm-hmm. Iranian film compared to our three act structure American movies. So yeah. like it, you approach, it, it's more slice of life. It's more like fleeting. Uh, the narrative comes and goes. Definitely. And Drive My Car was a fantastic example of that. I highly recommend that. But yours is great because I've really been getting into Japanese cinema and. Really I could I could recommend like a bunch of movies just right now. Uh, you know, I'll definitely send you some of my recommends. I'm like one of those guys that because I, I lived in Japan for four four years, right? And I'm like yeah. a weeb that's not a weeb. All right, I don't sure. like anime really. Yeah, I don't like, come across yeah, like that. I don't like any of the 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 things that when that when people associate with Japan, but I like their convenience stores and I like their kind of like artsy movies and their weird fascination yeah. with rockabilly <laughs> and that kind of stuff. <laughs> uh, you'd be surprised how punk rock and rockabilly Japan is. Like on the on yeah. the down low, it's like there's actual. I've, I've seen, I've, I've I've heard of some of their stuff. I've seen some of the the, the clothing at least. Yeah, they have, so it's very like, interesting. You'll go you'll go to places in Tokyo and it'll be like punk bars and you know in restaurants and like you know clubs yeah, and stuff really that, look, that look like nineteen like seventy eight. You know, like uh, yeah. The thing with the Japanese when when they have a, an aesthetic fixation, they really go all out. And this, all out. I think this is something I was reading in uh, some Reynolds Retromania, which is another fantastic book. But he's basically talking about how they're so fixated on the, the idea of the, the American past, they'll reproduce it to the best of their ability and almost always kind of outdo it, which is what you get like from like the uh, the Japanese American Ivy League prep kind of style right. that was popular way back when. Um, well, but yeah, or their jazz, or their jazz. They love jazz. Yeah. And, and some of the baseball. Most. I, I don't like baseball. My wife does. You know, but, uh, <laughs> no, that's fair. I don't like baseball. <laughs> just never got, never got into it, you know? Yeah. But. Uh, I don't like any sports except for like mm. volleyball or something. Sure. Um, but yeah, you go to these jazz jazz bars in Japan, even like in crappy little cities, you know, and they have these full on jazz nights and they have a full bunch of old guys playing jazz and that's what they do for fun. And they're yeah. so into it. Um, they have bars where, 
you know, they, there's just record, it's like a record bar, and they have like just everything's just like a giant library filled with the uh, with you know vinyl, and you yeah. just pick one out, and the the bartender plays it, you know, and that's kind of the whole yeah. vi- vibe of the bar. Um, but I will say the coolest bar I've ever been to was actually in Taipei, in Taiwan, mm-hmm. and it was called the Roxy Rocker, and it had like it played like David Bowie, and it was completely oh, like seventies cool. glam, glam style. Bar. Yeah, yeah, it was it was, yeah, it was amazing. Like it was like the highlight of my trip. I mean, going to Taiwan was great all around, but it was one of my favorite parts of the trip. Going to this bar, we went there like three times because we liked it so much. All right, man. Noah, thank you for your time. It was a pleasure having you on, and I want to I want to have you on back again as soon as you write something. Oh, thank you. Know, you. We'll come back. I, I yeah, I'll like, let you know. I feel like we can talk for like six hours, to be honest. Yeah, that's the problem. That we right. someone should stop us. <laughs> yeah, for sure. All right. So, man, have a good day, and thank uh, you, see you dogs. This will be out soon, so you know, right. share it with everybody, and then thank you to all the listeners. Please share and like across all social media. Go and buy Noah's stuff. All right, support the independent scene. <laughs>